Sometimes it might be that in, a, in an environment like this, on retreat, in this case here at Gaia House, <coughs> it might be that we can have a certain impression of the place or a certain impression of the environment, of the silence. It might be that the silence feels rather austere to us at times. It might be that I mean, it feels kind of lonely or something at times. It might be it just seems weird at times. All these people shuffling around mm-hmm. the corridors, sitting around like blobs wrapped in blankets. <laughs> of course, the silence isn't essentially any of those things. Actually, mostly what we see is what we project onto it. What we see mostly is our own mind state. If one's feeling lonely, then the silence or the environment can feel rather lonely. If one's feeling sad, the silence can feel sad. If one's feeling very peaceful, then similarly the silence can feel very peaceful. And there's, yet there's something about the quietude, something about the fact that there's a certain interiority to our way of practicing, something about the fact that uh, we're softening, relaxing, something about the fact that the face is in repose, that we don't necessarily easily see some of the depth, joy, beauty, delight, that uh, people may be experiencing. We know it when, in those moments that we experience it. But in some ways, this sort of blank screen that we can project onto. Is this especially loud? Or maybe I'll just, it's okay, I'll just turn it away a bit. Okay. Um, this blank screen of the silence that we can, you know, project onto, we don't necessarily see some of the joy and beauty and delight. Some of those beautiful qualities that are actually really, really important in our practice. It's very important if we want to sustain over time the willingness to really keep looking deeply into life. It's important that that practice is nourished by happiness, by joy, by delight, by fulfillment. So I thought I'd speak about some of those things tonight, maybe as something of a counterpoint to the dukkha that we spoke about last night. So happiness, pleasure, joy, fulfillment, freeness. When speak about happiness and I'll make, I'll distinguish a little between happiness and joy. And happiness, I, the way, at least the way I'm defining it, is really to do with pleasure. Right. The pleasure. And what, what does pleasure, what's, pleasure happens when, oh, when we, we get something we like. Right. And something agreeable happens 
or we get something agreeable and you know, the serotonin, is it, or uh, whatever those brain chemicals are called, get triggered and the, we pleasure, feel happy. Yet yeah, there's a lot of gradations of happiness. And uh, for many people, maybe even most people, I don't know, but for many people, the coarser end of the scale of happiness is by far the great majority, if not maybe even all, the happiness that they get to taste. So, and that's the happiness that we could call, con what I like to call, consumptive gratification. Right? The happiness that's really of getting, having, and becoming something. When we get or ha and have and become what I want, then I feel you know, satisfied by that in some way. You can see it operating in our lives, right? And not necessarily in a bad way. Consumptive gratification might sound a bit judgmental. Right? I don't mean it that way. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a form of happiness. It cheers us up. Right? Feel miserable, have chocolate, feel better. Right? I mean, it, it's not foolproof that, as a system. But, you know, sometimes... It works. So there's, there's that happiness of getting what we want and having it and feeling happy. And like I said, it's the coarser end of the scale and yet that's okay. It's, it's brief, the satisfaction. And if we don't really, if we don't go beyond that, we end up in the kind of endless pursuit of trying to repeat. The, the endless pursuit of trying to string together moments of pleasure and defend against moments of displeasure. And, you know, with a, with a not great percentage rate, usually. Just because it's impossible, like we explored yesterday when we spoke about dukkha, it's impossible for any of us to organize the circumstances of our lives, whatever situation we find, whatever social situation, economic situation, etc. It's impossible for anybody. And we tend to have different kind of learned or default relationship to pleasure. Some of us are quite good at taking in pleasure. And some of us have a, a kind of rather compulsive relationship to pleasure. For some of us, pleasure-seeking like, has a big pull on us. In Buddhist psychology, you know, the personality can be divided into these three types. Right? So the compulsive or greedy type, the contracted or fearful or aversive type, and then the kind of deluded, spaced out, confused type. Right. And if you're thinking, hold on, all, thre all three of those sound, <laughs> sound like me. Well, you know, we do have all three of those tendencies. But you know, for most of us, we can there's, there's one that predominates. 
And so for some of us, the, the, the pull towards pleasure, when we, walk, when we come to a situation, we think, oh, what can I get from it? What can I do with it? How can I enjoy this? Whereas for others, we come to the same situation and we're more focused on, oh, what might be dangerous here or what might be difficult here? And others might come to that solution, uh, same situation and just barely connect to it because one's just lost in thoughts about something else. So you see those three different kind of directions, the towards the pleasant or the away from the unpleasant or they're just, you know, going unconscious in some way. But I think we can make a practice actually out of the, even that coarser level of happiness by actually focusing on pleasure, letting oneself really enjoy Sometimes we find that even though there may be a lot of focus on the pleasure, we mentioned lunch the other day, right? This great beacon of pleasure that shines out in the middle of the day, right? And then we sort of scan the schedule, yeah, lunch, <laughs> soup. And yet it's interesting if you, if you attend, you can see we're sitting through the morning, oh, when's lunch? How long to lunch? Can't wait for lunch. And then you go and do your walking meditation. Oh, I can smell lunch, lunch, lunch. So one might surmise from that, but but by the time lunch comes, you're really going to enjoy it. But if we look closely, how easily we maybe enjoy the first half a mouthful, right? Before we're already starting to think, I hope there'll be enough for seconds. Right? And there's a certain disconnect. We might say we're enjoying it. But actually, in terms of being present for the enjoyment, in terms of actually taking in the pleasure, the pleasure of eating, as well as the associations with that, the kind of, oh, the pleasure of being fed, the good fortune. And somebody, many people, you know, have been kind of working on our behalf to feed us. And yet how easily we kind of going ahead to the next thing. And the very thing we've been doing through the morning, looking ahead to some future pleasure, is which we've been strengthening that pattern. So the, by the time we get to the object of pleasure, called lunch, the same pattern's still running. And we're looking forward to the next moment of pleasure, called you know, seconds, or called going for a rest afterwards, or whatever else it is that we've, uh, we've associated, we've made into the next thing, the next thing. So it's helpful, you know, in those moments with the, squ- the square of chocolate or those moments when you come, like here on retreat, when you come to lunch, to actually let yourself enjoy, to take that in, to feel the nourishment, not just of the food in this case, of the lunch, but actually to feel the nourishment of pleasure. And while some of us, uh, like I say, have that kind of pursuing relationship with pleasure, for others of us, actually, we, we, there's the tendency to kind of deny ourselves pleasure or to feel uncomfortable with pleasure. I've been hearing from a couple of people today right, about, on the one hand, appreciating the, one's, the pleasure of being here pleasure of having some days freed from one's duties, the pleasure of being able to 
settle into a certain quietude, and the pleasure of a certain bodily ease that's been established over the days. And yet also some uh, unease with or inability to let that pleasure in. And when we start to get too comfortable with ourselves, we start to feel too at ease, maybe even the edges of delicious feeling, oh, then, oops, something, something can't be right here. I'm not worrying about anything. I better find something to worry about because I know how to do that, right? That's my usual modus operandi. And then we cast around, oh, I definitely will find something. So there too, if we're somebody who tends to kind of skip over pleasure or, or overlook pleasure towards the next worry or problem on the horizon... Which can be, which can give us, you know, um, like I say, a more usual sense of self, a u- more usual sense of world, or a tendency to relate to life as prob- as a series of problems to be solved, or things to be done, or uh, lists to be crossed off, etc. So that as a practice of presence, right. And this is kind of good news. We can talk about mindfulness and we think of a mindful breathing, mindful walking. Right? But how about you know, mindful enjoying? I'm offering that to you as a practice. Right? To make room to be around for pleasure, to feel the nourishment of pleasure. As I say, that's sort of, I'm calling that kind of, you know, that, the pleasure of having what I like, getting what I like, being in a situation that I like. It's a kind of consumptive gratification. But there's a lot of gradations to that. In the Buddhist tradition, Buddha makes a, a lot of uh, points to different um, refinements of pleasure, like the pleasure of absorption. Right, in meditation. And those practices that are specifically designed towards um, a certain, developing a certain one-pointed focus of mind, the jhana practices particularly, where the attention can absorb into an object and stay very steady. And the, the pleasure of a, an absorbed mind steady mind, a bright mind. Mm. Attention can absorb into a primary object, breath, for example, bodily sensation. The absorption brings about pleasure. And then one can actually absorb it into the pleasure itself. Absorbing the attention into the uh, the pleasure of a pacified mind, a tranquil mind, bright mind, absorbed mind, silent mind. And then that absorption into pleasure then leading in turn into tranquility. Another refinement, but it talks about the happiness of peace. For the monastics, or those living, you know, like even at here at Gaia House, some people here, some of you who are here this, this evening, are here for 
long, long retreats, many weeks, many months, some people. There's not very many opportunities for consumptive gratification here. Right? If one's staying over a long time. But the, the, what, uh, what's sustaining, we might come for a few days and think, wow, how do these people manage here for a long time? I've only been here for three days and it's basically it's all achy knees and wandering mind. And we have some sense if I stayed for much longer... It would just be much longer of achy knees and wandering mind. Mm -hmm. Might well not notice, not imagine how over time the refinement of our practice, the refinement of our capacity to know more and more refined pleasure, pleasure, the pleasure of a balanced mind, a bright mind, a tranquil mind, a cooperative mind. Another form of pleasure, happiness that's spoken about in the tradition, is the happiness of blamelessness. Right. Kind of where the 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 the, the happiness of giving up our tendency to complain, blame, find fault with. You know? Some of us get quite into that. But even when we really get into it, even when we find it's a very strong habit, even when we find there's something we kind of like about it, it's not pleasurable. It doesn't make you happy. And it can seem like, but then somebody must be to blame. Someone nearby or someone far away. One's poor parents often get the blame for most things. One of my friends says, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. The blame turns inwards, right? That kind of um, castigating oneself. And yet, uh, practice pointing to the way in which we can actually move beyond that kind of negativity, move beyond the searching for a negative object, searching for, for something to kind of put our unhappiness onto. It's your fault that I'm unhappy or their fault, or, as I say, the self-blame, oh, it's my fault. Kind of, there's a sort of de- depth, a wellspring of happiness, of pleasure, of ease. It's available. When we really, when we firstly see how that doesn't make us happy, and then actually uh, um, develop the capacity to put it down, to leave it alone, such that it can actually stop being any kind of habit in the mind. And you might recognize some of those way stations of happiness in your own practice. And the encouragement 
to um, to really to make room for pleasure in an ordinary sense, like I say, lunch, chocolate, whatever, as well as in the refinement of your practice. And there's been no doubt been moments, right, where there's a, there's a certain just easy pleasure in being here. Moments where breath feels pleasurable. Moments where walking feels pleasurable. And important that we kind of really let those moments in when we're here. They're here. Because of what's called our negativity bias, which maybe you're familiar with. Rick Hansen, a well-known author and neuroscientist and friend and Dharma teacher, talks a lot about that and how we're, we're kind of our neural wiring is such that we tend to emphasize and notice the negative much more. And there's a kind of evolutionary reason for that, right? It's been more helpful evolutionarily for us to notice dangers coming, oh God, better do something about it, than it has been for us to just smell the leaves and enjoy, right? But most of those evolutionary reasons, you know, at least here, for example, these days, we're not in a lot of immediate danger. And yet the negativity bias still operates in us. He, he calls it, uh, what's the term he uses? It's like, it's like our, our neural wiring. He says it's like Teflon for negative experiences, unpleasant experiences, right? And they stick very easily and become habit-forming very easily. Whereas for, for pleasurable experience, delightful experience, right? he says it's more like Teflon. You know, that stuff that frying pans are covered in. And it easily slips off. And yet, we can also actually rewire our neural tendencies. That, that phenomenon of neuroplasticity, right? Just this is in terms of the brain research on it. If one attends in a certain way, if one lets oneself feel pleasure, like we've been speaking these days about this cellular relationship, letting your cells feel what's happening, letting your cells enjoy lunch, letting yourself bathe in those moments where there's a certain ease, lightness, enjoyment. It actually physically, in a measurable way, changes the wiring in your brain. And more significantly that than that, because none of us are probably going around measuring our brains, right? But the, we, we can very tangibly know the results in our life, in our experience. We can know the, the benefit, the, um, the, the gladness of having that fuller relationship with pleasure, wherever it arises. Joy is a little different. If, if what I've been calling happiness is really a relationship to that which is pleasurable, joy is more a quality of just the heart opening to what's here. 
It's not so much necessarily about my pleasure. That sense of just opening to the recognition of what there is to appreciate might not have anything to do with my situation, but being touched by. And some of you touched by the presence of the trees in the garden, for example. the way the heart kind of responds to that. We're touched by some gesture. We see somebody just gently caring for somebody else. We see the way somebody working in the garden is giving a kind of real gentleness and attention to what they're doing. We feel touched by that. It's hard to notice the way there's always something to appreciate. There's always something to wonder at. There's always something to be grateful for. It's hard to notice that when we're caught up in our familiar inner storytelling about ourselves. And yet it may be that we're caught up in some difficult situation, painful situation even. And yet, even within that, we might, if there's a, there's a, the, if we're orientated in that way, find that which is to be appreciated, like the very fact that we're here at all. One of my teachers, Christopher, who was the founder of Gaia House, was very much a fan of uh, Etty Hillisum who was a young girl who died in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And really the only reason we know anything about her is because she kept as a teenager these uh, journals. And in the train on the way to the concentration camp, she threw her journals out of the window and they were found and eventually published. And... And she wrote of some of the the horrors of the persecution of Jewish people and other minorities uh, during that time. And in in but in her diaries, the very last words she wrote before she threw her journals out the window were that we're on the way, we're in the train on the way to the camps, and all of us are singing. And there's a kind of a, a quality to her writing which in, it's what we find, right, with the human heart at its best. It's, quality, it's capacity to touch a depth and a beauty that defies what may be the horror of the circumstances. And in our own scale, and in our own lives, we may be exposed to things that are difficult, where we feel raw, vulnerable, afraid, confused. Right? We may be exposed to the, the vulnerability of others, the injustice of the world, the, the suffering of those we love, and the suffering of those in the wide world, the, the you know, extraordinary, sometimes unimaginable suffering that we might witness ourselves or read about or... Uh, you know, be in contact with in some way. 
And there's a way in which it's important that the heart is alive to that as well. And the acknowledgement of some of the, the difficulties, the cruelties that people experience. And yet even, even in the midst of that, that capacity to know and appreciation for, the, for life itself, know and appreciation for the fact that there's heart, that there's mind, that there's body, that there's world, that there's possibility. For some of us, different forms of open-heartedness come easily and others not so easily. And some of us might have an easy access to joy. And without anything special happening, we're walking outside, kind of nothing special, but somehow heart opens. Whether it's to the sun or whether it's to the rain, whether it's to the trees or whether it's to the sky or whether it's to the sight of other people doing their practice or whatever it is. And the way that joy is a kind of buoyancy of heart, a resource for well-being. The way that joy can actually spread out, bringing more and more of life the way the open-heartedness can spread out, up making room for more and more of life to be included in the heart. We need to enjoy. We need to feel deeply. We need to have the resource of that depth, the inspiration. And we may find it in the very ordinary, like I say, the fact of being alive, the fact that breathing happens, the fact that this body and mind is maintaining itself at all, kind of miraculous. We might find it in sources of inspiration, poetry, music, teachings. And to use that resource of turning towards that which delights the heart, turning towards that which opens the heart, turning towards that which tenderizes the heart. And this quality of fulfillment, and maybe if you those those of you who are Maybe if you're a kind of committed Dharma student, you know this differently, but if you're maybe a cursory or, I was going to say lightweight Dharma student, <laughs> if you have just a, a slight knowledge of Buddhism, then you might be familiar with the Eightfold Path as a, a series of rites, you know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right lifestyle, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's the usual list. And it's a, it's a it's an odd-sounding thing. And it's not very helpful, this idea of right, that there's a right, and therefore, of course, a wrong way of doing it. 
So I should have a right view instead of a wrong view. And I'm trying to have right speech instead of wrong speech. But the Pali word, sama, that was first translated as right and then some, at some point got retranslated sometimes, some places as wise, wise speech, wise action. But still has a bit the suggestion of its opposite, unwise. Actually, the, the etymology of sama suggests to cultivate or to bring to fulfillment. It's very different to look at one's intentions and one's understanding and one's speech with the intention to kind of to cultivate them, to bring to fulfillment, to refine, might be a good word actually. And that sense of the, the, the beauty, the vision, the possibility of refining body, speech and mind. Right? Refining our understanding, refining our action, refining our responses. That's possibility of actually becoming more skillful, more attuned, more responsive. It's a great resource for well-being. And I don't want to use this time to kind of go through the list of eight. I leave you to... to um, some of you are very familiar with, and if you're not, I leave you to find out and to read, etc., yourself. But I, that summer part, the first part, rather than right or wise, I'd encourage you to see it as a, a cultivating, a refining, a developing, a deepening of those possibilities for you know the way we use this human life, human heart, human mind. We've been speaking. Um, Sometimes, in terms of the different aspects of human experience, bodily experience, emotional experience, cognitive experience. And that sense of a a deepening fulfillment has a certain qualities in those different centers of experience. That that deepening sense of fulfillment in our bodily experience is as the sense of ease, an easeful body, an undefended body. Ease doesn't mean that the, you know, injury may happen, sickness may happen, right? illness may happen, all kinds of physical uh, limitations or difficulties may come along. But as we've been exploring, a lot of the difficulty we experience is the compounding of tension and defensiveness. And as we fulfill these different areas of human possibility, those defenses can drop away. We can know an undefended relationship with life. A fulfillment that we experience as a certain ease, a certain capacity to be in this body. Deepening capacity to be where experience is. That fulfillment in the heart is love. That deepening, refining quality of the heart to turn towards what's happening with love. Maybe the love of compassion, 
right? The capacity of the heart to turn towards that which is painful and respond to it. It may be the love of joy, that capacity to turn the heart towards the beautiful, to see that which there is to appreciate, to delight in, to be nourished by. It may be the love just of the, the spacious heart, a heart that can make room for the inevitable ups and downs, beauties and sorrows, without closing down. And these qualities are kind of, at least seem to me to be infinite in their fulfilling, in their deepening, in their refining. It doesn't seem to be that there's an end point to the deepening of ease. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of end point to the deepening or refining of love. And then that fulfillment in the head center or cognitive life, a refining, deepening sense of clarity, or this, a sense of our mind being a clear channel, clear like clear water, so we're actually able to see what's going on. A sense of mind being a cooperative place, a friendly place. As we uh, make those refinements to our understanding and our intentions and our actions, etc. Refining the troublesome ways that we speak to ourselves, that we um, trouble ourselves, that we blame ourselves, etc. And again, just the, as a resource for, be, for well-being, wherever one finds oneself on that scale, right? and it's not really a linear movement, there are times where we might notice a real refinement, times where we might notice a real ease, times where we might notice an, a, an effortless and tangible presence of love. And then times where we find ourselves troubled or confused in various ways. But if we look at the whole trajectory of our practice, right? if you have, those of you who have even some months, or some years, some of you have some decades of practice to look back on, right? and you can see sometimes, sometimes struck by the depth and beauty and refinement that you can notice in your practice, sometimes struck by some stuckness or difficulty. But over the whole trajectory, you can see the deepening, the refining. You may not very clearly see the deepening and refining of your meditation practice. Right? You may. If you spend a lot of time in retreat, then you probably will. If you don't spend that much in time in retreat, you might be just astonished at the spectacular um, lack of refining of your meditation practice. But the beautiful thing is that 
you you notice the the fulfilling or the refining or the deepening of your life your, your relationship with body heart and mind your capacity to sense what's happening your capacity to notice when there's reactivity and not go there your capacity to stay attuned your capacity to respond a little more skillfully a little more freely And when we notice that, just knowing that we're on a path that leads in a liberating direction, in a deepening direction, in a soothing direction, in a fulfilling direction, in a helpful direction, in a loving direction. The great resource for our well-being, just knowing that our actions and our direction and our practice is actually aligned with our longing, our values, our deepest wish. And then also just to say something about freeness. Freeness. I, I much prefer the word freeness to the word freedom. There's something about the dumb. The, it's, you know, freedom is a noun. Freedom sounds like a place or a destination or a state. Somewhere to arrive at. Freeness is a, what is it? It's a quality, right? The freeness, it's something that's alive, something that's known or found or expressed in the midst of experience. It's very much the vision of Buddha's practice and teachings. It's one of the epithets he used the most to describe uh, the fulfillment of this practice. Vibhuti. Vibhuti and bodhi. Bodh, like Buddha, means awake. Vibhuti means free. Awakeness and freeness. What he's pointing to as these qualities. And we might ask, what does that mean? What a free, free from what? Free to what? Free with what? And I think that's what our practice really invites us to find out. We know freeness by its taste. In fact, it reminds me of a very beautiful line by the Buddha. He says, just as um, all the oceans have a single taste, the taste of salt, right? so too the deepening fulfillment of these practices has the same taste, the taste of freeness. It's a rather liberal translation, but that's okay. Right? Actually, he says all true teachings have the same taste, the taste of freeness. And that's the, the taste we're invited to taste. The unmistakable taste of feeling like free from one's um, past patterning. Free from one's defenses. 
free from one's fears and habits and shutdowns. Free to feel, free to act, free to care, free to respond. Free to die. friend asked me just recently, what do you think is a successful life? And the immediate response that came was being able to die freely right now. And taste of freeness, a sense of nothing to defend, nothing to, nothing for fear to constellate around truly available to life. So may we all know happiness and joy and fulfillment and freeness. May the refining of our practice and our understanding, our love and our wisdom deepen infinitely. May we live fully and fearlessly and die freely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.